All right, let's jump into it. Just like last night in the first hour I have with you, had with you on guilt and repentance, now it's forgiveness. So great joy for me. I say a great joy for me to get some of the topics that I think are most important, but that's because I chose the topics that I wanted to. When you're the lead pastor and you've been here forever, you tell them which ones you're going to do. <laughs> so I take some of the ones... But it is, forgiveness, now we're still right back at the heart and hub of what it's all about. This, this would be a topic that I would think any church, any believer would be thinking about and talking about. But all the more so, if you really want to do ministry with people at close range. So that's, that's to me the key difference between a big preaching ministry and even a teaching in a Sunday school classroom and you're a good teacher and it's gotten to where it's 40 and 45 and 50 people sitting there. We're talking about, I hope you see, getting you prepared to sitting across your, your kitchen table with one person, whether they fill out paperwork or not, and you have a better understanding of how to listen well, ask questions, give hope, build involvement, and get to heart issues to understand why are they so stuck? Why are they in so much pain? Why are they so confused? And that you would understand, how do I help them? Because many times believers, they say the right things. Can you, can you have an information that is accurate according to God's word and still be living a life that is not matching that and not recognize it yourself readily? Yes, that's, that's the problem. And they need help. And this can be difficult but it also can be so very exciting. So here's one of those. Forgiveness. People still, Christians, still really struggle with this. Of all the things that I've seen as a pastor for 30 years, this is one at the top of the list that I would say it's not like. You would think, you would think that Christians of all people who are the people who have been gripped by, I have been forgiven. How many of my sins? All. Would just run around saying, oh, I forgive you. And you, you haven't even done anything yet. I forgive you before you do it. I forgive. I, I just want to forgive everybody. God has forgiven me. Go ahead and hurt me so I can forgive you. Oh, no, no, no. Sadly, no. It's like you constantly have to reconnect them with, hey, 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 hey. I know that hurt. But God has forgiven you everything and he doesn't just suggest we're going to see in this hour together he doesn't just suggest i suggest in light of how i've forgiven you that you strongly consider forgiving others he commands us so this whole this whole hour will be hinged on if you begin to struggle and some of you probably will you came in struggling with this and you're going to struggle while i talk about it if you could get back to solidly understanding it all hinges on the hinge on which this door of forgiveness swings towards you must, you have to, he commands us to, is as he's forgiven you. If you lose sight of, and that's one of the biggest problems, Christians are not freshly, keenly aware of and still delighting in how he's forgiven them. It's kind of something in the past. And that's often part of the problem. How many of you have ever heard this line? And you're going to be older if you have. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, that was a line out of a blockbuster movie. 
And there were t-shirts and beach towels and all kinds of stuff. The problem with it is it's just not true. And again, it's Hollywood in our world often comes up with these things that just... And love doesn't mean never having to say you're sorry. In fact, if you choose to never say you're sorry, you won't have love for long. The thing that keeps love alive... Because think about this. Track with me. Love, by its very nature... And and I've moved past just a warm, fuzzy feeling. But biblical love, which is giving for the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. You've got to be vulnerable to truly love and experience intimacy. Puts you at risk. You're likely to get hurt. There's no one in this world you're going to choose to love that isn't a sinner that couldn't hurt you. So you're at risk. You better know what to do when it happens. Hurt is going to come. What are you going to do? If you don't have forgiveness and you don't know that's where to go and you don't have the gospel and the cross, love will not stay alive long. But again, the world has this notion, right? Just like the same notion of that's how you find the one that you should marry. It's just, it's just this thing. It's my soulmate. And if I find the right one, it'll just be great. Whoever you find is a sinner. So you better be ready to forgive and know what to do when you're hurt. It's not... Never having to say you're sorry. So why should we even discuss forgiveness? Well, let's track through a few reasons why we even need to discuss this. Some of them I've hit on already. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. If we're separated from God, and God's word assures us that we are from birth, you don't become an enemy of God. You don't become separated from God. You're born that way. Then forgiveness is our greatest need. Not education, not money, not human relationships to be right with the God of the universe is our greatest need which puts forgiveness right at the heart of that it's man's greatest need it's necessary for salvation it's at the very heart of it forgiveness is necessary for salvation and we are commanded to forgive others the same way God has forgiven us and this cup of coffee is making me really nervous God, we're commanded to forgive others in the same way God has forgiven us. It's not a suggestion. It's not an encouragement. It's not optional. There's so many things. Here's what, here's what saddens me. There's so many things that tend to characterize Christians. And often when I look at it, it's not what should characterize us. Forgiveness should be something that just characterizes us. But often I find that it's not. The people in the workplace wouldn't find that you're more forgiving than others. The people in your home wouldn't find that you're more... Often they find you're more informed. You're more judgmental. You're more arrogant. You're more... These are not the things that are supposed to characterize us. Forgiveness. It's not optional. It's a, it's a command. In fact, God, uh, Jesus himself puts a non-optional clause into the Lord's Prayer. I think it's interesting. When his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he gave the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will. There's that place where he says, and forgive us our trespasses. On what basis? As we forgive others their trespasses. And it's almost like he anticipated of everything that he just framed up there for them in the Lord's Prayer. That would be the one that they would struggle with the most because he comes back and gives an additional commentary on that 
when he says in Matthew 6, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now you gotta do something with that. There's often these places in the Bible that I'll say, I'm not absolutely sure what that must mean, but I know it means something. And here's one that's worth thinking about. So I do not believe believers, Christians, can lose their salvation. So I'm not a Nazarene. I don't think you can be saved today, lost two months from now. I believe the Bible teaches when he saves you, he keeps you. But what perhaps it could be saying, folks, is that if you will not forgive someone else, the reason he doesn't forgive your trespasses is you're not a Christian. It indicates you're just not a Christian. It's not like he had and now he pulls back and says, oops, now I don't. I did, but now I don't. It could be that that's just an indication you're not his child. Because I have five kids. There's things about them that it's obvious they're mine that I'm embarrassed about. Because it is so me. I mean, there's something about parenting. I know parent Peter's been in here teaching you on parenting. And let's be honest. Lots of times it's just like it's you on two little legs. You're like, oh, I wish she wasn't like that, but I know where she got that, right? There's things that, that characterize us because of our parents and our children are like, but, but there's things that are also good. My son Harrison, there's, there's, there's things that still concern me greatly at 25, but there's things that I love, I love to see it in him. And so often, so often people will say, uh, when he comes and if he brings some friends his age in their 20s, they'll come up to me and they're like, oh, my goodness. They don't even know me, but they've just heard one sermon. They're like, you two are so much like. He is so much like you. Oh, whoa. For us as Christians, folks, it ought to be. We're not going to be perfect, and there can be things that are way off mark that you certainly can't blame on God and say, I'm that way because I'm a child of God. But it ought to be that people say, oh, my goodness, you are so much like the God that I've heard about growing up in church. That forget, Because this just so much characterizes you too. You're so quick to give mercy. You're so quick to forgive. You're, you don't take offense. You don't keep a record of wrong. You don't retaliate. It ought to be something that reminds people of our Father. You're like Him. You're like Him. Seeking and receiving forgiveness is a prerequisite to mutual love. The strongest argument for the Christian faith. Here's what I mean by this. The more I read my New Testament and the longer I walk with the Lord now, the more I'm just struck by how often in the New Testament letters he commends them for this, that they love each other and he exhorts them to do it more because he knows they struggle. Oh, news is sounded abroad. And it never says, news is sounded abroad. How much of the scriptures you know and can quote like, boom. Never. News is sounded abroad about your end time charts. It's amazing. Never. News is sounded abroad about your spiritual gifts, assessment, tests, and the way you can identify it for everybody. It's amazing. They'll say your faith. Your boldness to speak the gospel and your love for each other. 
your love for each other. Well, think about it. If love for each other, and that's the other thing that should strike you. The more you read your Bible, our world makes a lot of, and sadly, I think Christian musicians that write songs on the Christian radio, too often it's all about loving. I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but folks, loving the homeless person. There she is, and she's on the street, and don't hear me saying there's not a place for that. But before we'll begin to love the homeless person, God's called us to love the woman in your Sunday school class that you can't stand. Right? That's where we're supposed to start. And he calls us there. Look how many times it's love each other. Love each other. Be fervent in your love for each other. Abound in love for each other. Increase in your love for each other. How's that going to happen? Because when we get together, it doesn't matter how small the church is or how big the church is. It can be a church of 40, church of 70, church of 700. You get a bunch of Christians together who are still sinners, and there's going to be some hurt. There's going to be some offense. There's going to be some rub. If you don't know all about how to forgive, it won't stay alive, right? So to maintain one of our most powerful, I believe our love for each other was intended by God to be one of the most powerful apologetics to the world as to why this gospel is life-changing. And so it's one of the poorest testimonies when churches are just fighting and carrying on and slandering each other and hating each other just like the world over picayune stuff very often. Love, love. Forgiveness is what keeps one of our strongest apologetics alive. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Unreconciled relationships between Christians hinders evangelism and robs churches of a positive community witness. So this matters. This matters a lot. We want to reach our world. We want the world to actually listen to the message that we have. Folks, I think it was Gandhi that one time said he had no problem with Jesus. He said, I can't hardly hear the message of the gospel because of what I see with Christians. We're never going to be perfect. They know that. We don't have to pretend to be perfect. What they need to see is that when we blow it, we own it, even with each other, and we ask for forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness. And then at work with them, yeah, then push outside with unbelievers, you ask. I recently went to an unbeliever and asked for forgiveness. Oh, my goodness. You just, they start backing away. It makes them very uneasy. But before he completely got to where he couldn't hear my voice, I finished my appeal. I think that's healthy too. That they see you coming back and asking for forgiveness for something you think you did wrong towards them. This is a powerful apologetic. David Nasser says, all of us get hurt from time to time and most of us are hurt very badly at some point in our lives. But Christians have the incredible resource and the responsibility. So there's two things we have that an unbeliever doesn't have. We have a resource they don't have. The gospel and the Holy Spirit living in us. The Jesus who stretched out and forgave us on the cross is the same one that lives in you. So he wants to do that through you towards others that offend you. You have a resource unbelievers don't have. You have a responsibility unbelievers don't have. He says, as I have forgiven you, Forgive, forgive. Not out of our own strength, but out of the strength God provides through our experience of his forgiveness. We can pray that God will help us love that person. I love how he says this. He's obviously lived some life. Listen, does that sound difficult? 
It's not difficult. It's impossible. Unless you and I have feasted on the cross of Christ. I really do believe that is the problem right there. For too many Christians, when you say cross, crucifixion, death of Christ, it's, it's, a, it's a distant speck in their mind. Something way back there. And even they associate it with them coming to Christ, maybe when I was seven. But if you've ceased to think about it, if you've ceased to delight in it, if you've ceased to thank God for it, if you've gotten over the fact that the God of the universe has forgiven you all your trespasses, you're going to struggle to forgive somebody else. Don't let it happen. Don't get over it. You say, what should I do, Brad? This is going to sound like a broken record. Keep reading this. How much of it? All of it. I see Paul not getting over this. He just doesn't get over it. He doesn't. And you see it all. We're in our small group. We're going through 1 Peter. And so there it was again, halfway through chapter 2, where he says, Oh my goodness, you were once not the people of God, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Don't ever get over that. I was on my way to hell and deserved it. I was an enemy. I was estranged from God. I was separated from God. I was totally lost. There was no hope for me. And he rescued me and showed me mercy. And Christ stepped in my place and he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. You ought never get over that. But if you keep reading the New Testament, it'll help you never get over that. Because it talks about it a lot. One of the most significant problems. This is Paul Tripp now in my all-time favorite book. If you want to know how to do counseling, don't buy mine. Buy his. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. If you're just going to buy one book, buy that one. He says one of the most significant problems in our marriage relationships is there's no economy of grace. With all our obvious difficulties, what is most shocking is the profound gracelessness. Of our marriages. It's so true. So I have a great joy to sit in front of couples that are struggling. And I've told you, often I get to see God at work. But often I get to see a really ugly side. I'm just like, whoa. Whoa. I'm not talking about I found two unbelievers at the gym that wanted me to help them with their marriage. I'm talking about two people that are in my church who I believe are hearing what I think is pretty good preaching. Um, and sometimes I find myself thinking, have you heard anything that I've said? What in the world? How is this not coming into play in your marriage and in your... But believers have the amazing capacity to almost like build a wall. This is a glorious truth that I delight in in another context. It has nothing to do with now because you don't know what... It's like, break down the wall. Let that grace show up here profound gracelessness of our marriages there's no willingness to look within and confess deep-seated sins so we never find sweet forgiveness there's no vertical hope to carry us in dark and discouraging times there's no rest that comes from entrusting each other to the god of grace there's no faith that god will give us all we need to respond to each other in godly ways as a result the relationship is reduced to human demands human performance Human failure, human judgment, and human punishment. There is no hope or power for change. And because we're not, here we are again, just like David Nasser said, you got to be 
feasting on the cross. Notice how Paul Tripp words it. And because we're not daily soaking in the fountain of God's grace, we do not extend it to each other. That's why when I do a wedding, I always have right in my wedding ceremony, not just the typical vows back and forth, but I talk about forgiveness. To, get, to set that up, you have to talk about sin. That's where I think I said, I, I mentioned, you're sinner, 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 sinner. Have I made everyone mad enough to now talk about forgiveness so that it means something? And I'll say, you're going to have to be ready to forgive. Readily, quickly, often. And so then I'll say, so I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here today. I'm going to publicly ask you. And then I'll say, Sarah... From this day forward, are you willing to practice biblical forgiveness towards your new husband, Bob? And will you promise to not allow yourself the luxury of bitterness and resentment? Does the flesh not find it a luxury? Yes, bitterness can taste good. You don't realize it's, it's you licking the knife of bitterness and you're bleeding and drinking your own blood, but it feels good. You just think, yes, yes, yes. I mean, it is very hard for people to let go of bitterness. Even though it's so toxic and destructive, it seems like a luxury. Because here's what it feels like. It feels like a great loss. I now have the hurt that they did against me and the additional loss of what seems to feel good of holding this against them. You're asking me to take another hit. Yes. Yes. If you're willing to do this, say I will. And I do the same thing with the young man. Make sure you know what forgiveness is not. So again, let's push off the table what it's not. And very often Christians get hung up. Certainly unbelievers are in total confusion over this. But believers get hung up because they're thinking it's something that it's not. So let's push off the table what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. There may be a feeling and there may not be a feeling. But the whole thing is not based on a feeling. I find so often that when Christians are right at this crossroads of needing to forgive someone, it's typical. We want feelings. And we think we're being a hypocrite or inauthentic to grant forgiveness when we don't feel anything. It's feelings most often follow obedience. You will rarely feel your way into a good place that pleases the Lord. Mark that down. You will rarely feel your way into a good biblical place that pleases the Lord. You almost always have to obey your way there. And feelings will follow in time. It's not a feeling. Stop waiting for a certain kind of feeling. Corey Tenboom describes it very well. And here's someone who knew her, right? You know her story? The Hiding Place is a great book if you've never read that. I've read it multiple times. Wow. You know, to be in a Nazi concentration camp and she watched her dear father that she loved dearly that was a watchmaker, one of the sweetest men you could have been around, die. She watched her sister Betsy, whom she loved dearly, die. But she survived. And then lived to go and speak and give her testimony. Imagine how often she struggled, Right? You've got German leaders who were a part of some of this, and now they're free, and she's running into some of them. And she said this, because often people will struggle with thinking, well, I still have a feeling from time to time of, oh, 
Does that mean I didn't forgive? She said, unforgiveness is like ringing a bell. As long as you pull the rope, the bell in the tower rings. Then you make a decision not to ring it anymore. That's your decision to say, I'm going to forgive. I'm not going to keep ringing this bell saying, look what you did to me. I'm holding you to it. Look what you did to me. I'm holding this against you. You let go. You make a decision to not ring it anymore. And you're free of the unforgiveness. That's fine. But the bell keeps ringing for a while. I think this is a marvelous illustration. If you've been going a certain direction and you've been really hurt and you've been rehearsing it to yourself, listen, folks, your feelings won't just stop as soon as you choose to forgive. They may still go in that same direction, just like a bell would keep swinging for a bit. Your hand is no longer on the rope. You no longer will to ring it. But the momentum of your emotions does not instantly stop because the decision of the will has been made. Good insight. But people will struggle and say, I think I forgave, but maybe I didn't. Because, oh man, all of a sudden I still had this horrible feeling. It's not based on feelings. I would even take her illustration and add this to it. There are times, depending on how small the bell is, that a strong wind could come up and it just moves a bit. You can be two, three years beyond that point of where you thought you forgave. And something can happen, a sight or a sound, or a song, or something. It's often just amazing, just this little thing, and boom, it's all right there again. Doesn't mean you didn't forgive. Doesn't mean you didn't forgive. It does mean right in that moment, you have to revisit and say, nope, 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 not going there. I forgave. I forgave. We're not going there, feelings. I forgave. And you choose to not rehearse it, and settle into it, and dwell on it. Forgiveness is to be granted when a sinner repents. Forgiveness is to be granted when a sinner repents. Now, here's where I want to be honest. Good men and women in the Christian community differ on this point. ACBC, with whom I'm certified, and I teach for them. But I don't teach this workshop for for them. They don't have me teach it because we differ. But we still love each other. They teach you don't grant forgiveness at all unless someone asks for forgiveness. You're ready to forgive. You have a readiness of forgiveness. You have a posture of forgiveness. You have a heart of forgiveness. Don't get bitter, but don't forgive unless they ask. I disagree. I disagree. I think you should forgive whether they ever ask. And here's part of it is is my low opinion of human beings, even who are saved. I don't believe you can last long holding a posture of readiness to forgive, but not. You will end up bitter. Forgive. Grant it. Forgive. My go-to place is Jesus from the cross. Those people rolling dice and, and dividing up his garments weren't saying, oh, please forgive us. Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He forgave. He forgave. I want to be like Jesus. Get this. Forgiveness is to be granted repeatedly even on the same day. So God's word anticipates some of our struggle points, right? Here's what typically we do. Hey, if they were really sorry, they wouldn't have already done it again. So they can't truly be, I'm not going to forgive this time. No. It's, It's like even if they seven times in a day come back, forgive. Granted repeatedly on the same day. Christ declared that the disciples had the faith necessary to forgive. And they did not need to wait until they felt stronger spiritually. 
I'm getting this from Luke 17 because it's interesting. As soon as he began to talk this way, they said, Lord, increase our faith. It was their, it was their pushback, in essence, kind of saying, oh, wow, this sounds really hard. We don't have enough faith to operate this way. And then he spoke about faith of a mustard seed. So he said, you've got all you need to forgive. You, it's, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. He never said it would be easy. But listen was what was necessary for the God of the universe to forgive us easy? See, you got to keep going back there, folks. If you can keep going back there, you can keep moving forward. We tend to think, but this is costing me. It cost him. But this is hard. It was hard. Uh, The forgiveness that we've received came at a great... I think we make a mistake we hear so often... Salvation's a free gift. Salvation's a free gift. Salvation's a free gift. Is it? Yes. But a price was paid. A cost was made. A sacrifice was made. God the Father gave His beloved only Son. And He Himself poured out His wrath on Him. Don't ever get over that. That's what was done for God to give you the free gift of salvation. So if you'll keep going there, it will help you, I believe, when you're at those points where this person, listen, you will never forgive anyone for anything that they've done against you that is greater than what God's forgiven you of. Ever. Ever. There'll be no tipping point where you're like, you know what, this right here, no. This, this, no way God's forgiveness of me compares to this. You'd be a fool if you ever thought that. Forgiveness is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. It's not a feeling. You don't need more faith. It's obedience. And here's my point. Forgiveness is to be granted whether they ever come to you and ask for forgiveness. You grant it. Here's the other sticking point sometimes where we get hung up and in trouble. It's that it's a feeling... And this next point I want to make, that it is forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. In fact, think about this. The things that we struggle most to forgive, it's because in our minds they're so bad, so awful. I can't believe they... What are the chances you're going to forget that, my friend? And even though we have places in the scripture where it says, he remembers our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins. Does that mean God has forgotten all the sin we sinned against him? Let me help you. No, it doesn't. There are places in the scripture where the writers speak anthropomorphically. It means they put God in human terms. Like, does God have a hand? No. The hand of the Lord reached out. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have a body, but he talks that way. It simply means God is not choosing to keep your sin right on the front burner between him and you, constantly reminding you of, you, you of it and constantly seeing it at himself and filtering how he views you through that. He sets it aside and remembers it no more. But God is omniscient, folks. He doesn't forget anything. He chooses not to focus on it. I saw that. That's what he's calling us to do. You may never forget what they did. Now, we'll offer you this hope. I've seen this. Just like I said, obedience can lead your feelings in a new direction. Listen to this. I've seen this so many times. 
Often not until you actually truly choose to forgive with your whole heart and let it go. I've watched people, the memory of it and the details and the clarity of it begin to fade. After you choose to forgive. Here's what's going on. When you don't forgive, you keep it alive, right? Because when you don't forgive, you rehearse it. You revisit it. You think about it. It's right there. Often forgetting some. I would put it to you this way. The hope that I offer many people who struggle is not that you'll, it'll be obliterated. But that it can go from 56-inch screen, HD, color, clarity... To the wooden console in my grandfather's den, black and white, with a lot of snow running back and forth across the screen, that thing can begin to go a little more black and white and fuzzy after you forgive. James McDonald says, no, and here's his same point about forgetting. No, the reality is that you will never forget until you forgive. Forgiveness is both the crisis and the process of putting a person's sin behind you. It is setting it aside and saying, I won't think about that anymore. I won't focus on that anymore. It's a choice that begins the process of forgetting. Unforgiveness binds that offense to your heart and ensures that you'll never forget. Forgiveness is the first link in the chain of forgetting, not the reverse. There's no command in the Bible telling us to forget before we forgive. And yet I hear people talk that way. Believers. Well, I haven't forgotten it, so I can't forgive. Not how the Bible talks. Neither is there scriptural support for the statement, if you haven't forgotten, you haven't forgiven. Forgetting is a frequent byproduct of granting forgiveness biblically. But not always. Frequently a byproduct of granting Forgiveness. Here's my definition of forgiveness. I don't have a Bible verse for this, but when I pull the scriptures together, this, I think, captures it. Forgiveness is not trying to forget what that other person did to you. Forgiveness is your choice to remember what Christ already did for you on the cross and to act on that by extending that same forgiveness out to others regardless of how you feel. So it's not, it's not trying to, but I can't forget what she did to me. I can't, no, 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 no. You need to work harder to remember what Christ did for you. And on that basis, you've got a place to stand and pivot towards them and grant forgiveness. Matthew 18 is my go-to parable in helping people with this. More than once I've sat with someone and this is the passage that I go to. I've preached this passage many times. Because it, to me, it is so powerful. There are verses that just command you to forgive. There are verses that are woven into wonderful New Testament uh, letters of Paul that mention forgiveness. But this is a straight up, hit you between the eyes parable. We finished a parable series here at our church family in the summer where I said, parables were never meant to be a warm, tell me a Bible story, Uncle Jesus, as I snuggle down. Parables Jesus always told when he sensed that the crowd was so off base in their thinking 
about what God actually thinks about what they're thinking, and it's time for a parable. Parables were designed to be a punch right between the eyes, a wake-up call that you're like, what? That's why he always set them up so radically. Parables always have extreme details in them because he wanted to shock and shake people out of their conventional human thinking. I'd like to tell you that when you come to know Christ, you shed your conventional human thinking. You don't. And so there's this war. Am I going to still listen to and go with what seems right to me? Or am I going to go with what God says by his spirit living in me? And here's one of those parables. And it's interesting to me. It's a long one. And it's on forgiveness. Because I think Jesus knew. Oh, man, we struggle with this. Struggle with this. If you know it at all, then you know he sets it up with the servant who's been forgiven. He owes an an unimaginable debt that he could never, ever, ever pay. 10,000 talents. And let me help you here. One talent, right? We're not talking about gifts. Oh, she's talented. She can draw. A talent was a monetary figure. It was money. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years wages. One talent. The guy owes his master 10,000 talents. That's 200,000 years wages. Okay, so he, he set it up to mean, you're never going to pay this off. You, and doesn't that make sense? Could you ever have paid God off for all that you owe? And what? No, no, you have a debt that you could never have canceled on your own, no matter how hard you worked, ever. And the master forgives him because he begs. And then that same guy goes out and grabs a fellow servant by the throat and chokes him and says, pay me what you owe me. And the guy owed him a hundred denarii. Again, let me help you. Denarii is plural. Denarius is single. A denarius was one day's wage. And here's what I think is interesting. Jesus made it big enough that it hurts. A hundred days wages is three months. I don't know what you make, but I'm not in the position that I would say, eh, what's three months wages between friends? Don't worry about it. No, let's, let's, can you give plasma? Can you give me your next child? I mean, how can we, how can we do this? Can you rent out rooms in your home? I need that back. Three months wages is enough that you're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And yet, it doesn't even come close to comparing to 200,000 years wages. I had a friend with charts who crunched this down and put it into a little pie chart. And what happens is if you do it and put it in dollars, you ever seen something like that? The thing that that person noticed won't even show up. It's not enough that it'll even show up. But it's $9.6 billion versus $15,000. If you do that, it just doesn't. Even what that other person noticed doesn't even show. You've got, you've got this bar that's just, I think if we could go around, it would be helpful if there could just be this orange glowing bar that just shoots into the heavenlies. And as you're struggling to forgive that person at work or your spouse or your child or, or, or whatever, and you sense the orange glow and you thought, what is that glow? And you look, oh yeah. Oh, that's still there. That hasn't changed. $9.6 billion debt I had. 
And I've been set free, not because I earned it, deserved it, because Jesus died for me and the debt that was owed for that was placed on him and God's wrath was poured out on him and I've been forgiven. There's no condemnation now. He loves me. He sings over me. I'm an adopted son or daughter and it can never be taken from me. How can I not forgive? Because here's what I think is interesting. When I read the passage to people, then I'll, because it's in someone sitting there saying, can't, can't do it, won't do it, not going to happen. I'll say, where do you see, do you see yourself anywhere in the passage? It's funny how stupid adults can act at times. Like, you're, it's not that hard. And do you see what he calls you? Because when the master got word, because other servants, right, saw it and said, Word had spread how he had been forgiven. Like, you're going to do that? They went and told the master. The master called the guy back and said, here's the words, folks. Maybe you know, but if you don't, I want you to feel it right now. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had mercy On your fellow servant. Just as I had mercy on you. And it says he turned him over to the torturers to be tormented. Again, there's these are these are unsettling passages, my friends, regarding forgiveness, which I hope is helping you see. This is not a tangential issue like, oh, I'm gonna work on spiritual gifts and end times. I know there's three people I haven't forgiven. Maybe I'll think about that one day. I would think about it like now. I would flee the room and get alone and think about it like now. Because I've showed you two passages, Matthew 6 and now Matthew 18, that actually just should be disturbing, whatever it means. So I'll offer you some possibilities. It either means, again, you're not a Christian. Because Christians don't do this. So you're going to hell. Or it could mean you're going to be miserable. And we've got miserable Christians, right? Should be characterized by joy, but you're miserable. But you're miserable because you are living in a way you were never intended to live now. And you don't get God's help. You don't get God's grace. Turned him over to the torturers. If you don't understand the depth of your own sin against God and how much he's forgiven you, then you'll never have what it takes to forgive other people around you. So don't lose sight of that. Don't get over that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't get over that. I already touched on it, but well, there's the chart. Good. I already touched on this, but references to God forgetting our sins are really statements of God promising not to remember our sins against us. God can't forget, but he can choose to not hold our sins against us. So forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not forgetting. And here's another point at which people struggle. But if I forgive her, in a sense, I'm saying it was no big deal. It's amazing to me how much all of our biggest struggles can be solved if you'll keep doing what I've been pressing in this hour. Go back to how God forgives us. So, is forgiveness, did God feel a certain kind of feeling and he forgave us? No. He's God and he chose to. He wasn't moved by you and thought, oh, you're so lovable. You were an enemy 
Does God forget? And did he wait until, oh, I've forgotten all your sins so I can forgive you now? He knew. He saw it. And he put it on his son and forgave you. So it's not a feeling. It's not forgetting. And the same thing here. When God forgives us our sins, is that in any way saying, oh, it was no big deal. It was a huge deal. Therefore, don't get hung up there and say, oh, but if I forgive her or him, it's saying that it was no big deal. No, it's not. Not at all. Biblical forgiveness does not, and here's a point at which our world has caused such confusion with psychology and psychobabble. It doesn't include forgiving yourself, folks. Nowhere in the Bible does God call us to forgive ourselves. Just like nowhere in the Bible does God call us to love ourselves. You've got to love yourself before you can love others. No, you've got to shut up and read your Bible. You, your biggest problem and my biggest problem is that you love yourself lots. It's why you do what you do and have so many problems with the people you have problems with. Self-love is a huge problem. He simply said, love God and love others as you love yourself. Because I already know you love yourself. Just the way he talked to men in Ephesians 5 and said, love your wives as your own body. He knew he didn't need to say... Well, first start loving yourself, men, because you've got to get that ramped up so that then you can love her like you love you. No, he's like, I see how much you love you. Just start loving her like you love you, and it'd be a great start. And then go on and love her like Christ loved the church and died for it. Oh, yeah, work on that, too. So here we are with forgiveness. It's not no command to forgive yourself. So I hear sometimes people will say, well, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Again, what is at the heart of that? What horrible sin is feeding that? Pride. Often it's rooted in someone who still just can't actually come to grips with the fact that they did something that bad. Why? Because they don't think they're that bad. They have too high of an opinion of themselves. So this is not a humble person that needs some self-esteem boost. When people talk this way, this is someone who thinks their standard is more accurate and important than God. Do you hear what you're saying? I know God has forgiven me. The God of the universe, holy, 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 full of justice, perfect wisdom. He was willing to forgive this, but I can't. I have a higher, more accurate standard. There's a great little booklet in the counseling series, booklets that the publishers sell now. Uh, what, I can't, but I just can't forgive myself, I think is the title. So I use that. Well, there you go. Be careful, they change the covers. I hate that. I've bought so many booklets twice, and it's the same booklet, and they just change the cover. I wish they wouldn't do that. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm just, no, it's brown. And I was like, oh, no, it's not now. So I don't know what it looks like. When I put this workshop together, it looked like that. I know it still exists. Here's one of my favorite verses, Psalm 86.5. For you, Lord, are good. Listen to this. And ready to forgive. And abundant in mercy. See, the person who's saying struggling needs to hear God is ready to forgive. This is that person that sometimes has been repeatedly sinning and thinks they can't go back to God again. I can't go back to God again. Our God is ready to forgive. Ready. And, and if you're a believer, even if this is a repeated sin... Did you just sin one more time beyond what Christ died for? Or did God already know how many times you were going to do this and that's been addressed? 
It's been addressed, right? So you don't need to hesitate to go back to him. He's ready to forgive. God is more ready to forgive than we are to ask, is what I've found many times. Ready to forgive. He's a gracious God. It's really pride and arrogance that keeps people clinging to their guilt, saying they can't forgive themselves. So let's be clear now on what forgiveness is. What is forgiveness then? This is taken from Jay Adams. Forgiveness is a lifting of the charge of guilt from another. A formal declaration of the fact and a promise made and kept never to remember the wrong against him in the future. It's a choice. It's a promise. It's a commitment. Again, James McDonald says, forgiveness comes in two parts. It begins with a decision or an act of the will. We call this the crisis of forgiveness. But you're not done When I make the choice to release a person from the obligation that resulted when he or she injured me, I am completing the crisis of forgiveness. I'm not looking for vengeance. I'm not trying to get even. I'm not wishing for bad things to happen to them. And I'm not focused on their failure. In fact, I'm not thinking about them at all. I've released them from all obligation that resulted when they hurt me. Beyond the crisis, though, is the process of forgiveness, without which you will never experience the healing that forgiveness can bring. In the crisis of forgiveness, we say, I choose to forgive. But in the process, we say, I will treat you as though it never happened. That can be the really, really hard part. It's the process moving forward now. And see, here's what I think we run into. That you need to be ready to help either yourself, if you're the one struggling, or your friend who you're trying to come alongside with this. Many times, there are certain sins, and I believe adultery is one of them. But it's not the only one. That have, oh, so many pieces and parts to it. Because usually adultery doesn't take place without lots of deception, lots of lying, lots of... When you sit down and someone, it, it's exposed. Almost never are all the details of it exposed. And when someone chooses to forgive, and I'm always so grateful that they're willing. I know as I sit there. They do not know yet. Don't hear me saying the person is still being deceitful and not telling us all. But many times when you sit there in that moment, you just don't even know all the ways this is going to impact you. Does that make sense? Perhaps he's going to lose his job. You didn't know that. Then when he loses his job, you're struggling all over again to forgive. Because it's like, I forgave you for this, but now we're struggling financially. And it's because of you and... Right? The kids are angry and it's breached us with them and they're not coming to the house now. So many things are happening that are related to this. So some sins are like a disco ball. That there's all these facets, right? It's not just one thing. And here's what, here's what I think. You know that passage where Jesus, where, where Peter said, hey, how, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? He's like, you know what? How about 70 times seven? 490, which he just, again, hyperbola. Don't stop forgiving. I don't think Jesus just meant Forgive someone 490 times. There's going to be some sins that you will need to forgive them 490 times for that sin. Does that make sense? That as you move forward, you chose to stay together, but now here's something else. Oh, I didn't anticipate this, and this is hard. I'm struggling again. And you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive Because people will sometimes say, I thought I forgave, but now I'm really angry again. I'm really struggling with this piece. 
just encourage them. It's a process of forgiveness now. You made a crisis where you stuck a stick in the ground and said, I'm going to forgive. Now you're walking it out. Walking it out. Forgiveness is a decision and it's a promise to... I always tell my counselees it's a promise in four areas. Not to dwell on the incident mentally. I'm not going to dwell on it and choose to rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. I'm not going to bring up the incident to use it against you in a new argument. So we have a new upset two years later. It's off limits to say, this is just like when you, if you forgave, you're not going to reach back there and bring that into the current situation. I'm not going to talk about it to others who you might add in there who are not a part of the solution. It's appropriate to reach out and have a few people that are helping you walk through this. But I'm talking about where you're just blabbing it everywhere on your worst days. Well, this is because my husband, blah, blah, blah. Did you know he? Did you know we? Huh? Not appropriate. And I will not allow the incident to stand between me and you and to hinder us from building closeness again. This is most often related to marriage. Don't hear me saying if someone rapes your daughter... After you forgive them, you need to become best friends. God may give you grace, and you hear stories where people reach out and become friends. That's not required. But what is required is that you don't just keep at distance those like in the church that you share a church with or those in your family. Like, I forgave you, but I don't want to be around you. No. Because again, you say, well, 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 but Brad, back to God. Is that how God forgives us? I forgive you, but I don't want to be around you. No, no. I forgive you and I adopt you into my family as my adopted son or daughter. You don't put a wall up saying we're never going to be close again. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. So be careful here. Forgiveness means that you give the offender the opportunity to re-earn your trust. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. So when I call someone to forgive and say it has been adultery. Woo! It's not like, and, and she's two, le- two hours late coming home from work, or she's not where she said she was going to be, and he's upset, and he's, he has a right to be. Because sometimes they'll, the one that did the sinning is like, I asked God to forgive me. They said they forgive me. What's the deal? The deal is you're earning trust. You're earning trust. You bankrupted trust. They're choosing to forgive, but it's going to take time for trust to be built. And I'll tell them, This is some of the fruits of repentance. Just take it. Take it. Take it. When they have bad days and they're like, ah, don't push back and say, ah, take it. I always know that I've got repentance. I was working with a couple and horrible things had been done. Horrible. And she forgave. But often in our sessions, and this wasn't like six sessions. This was a year and a half. But often she would just still go off on him in front of me. He would just sit there and let her go. And when she would finish, he would say, this is on me. I did this. That's repentance. That's repentance. Now, if 10 years from now, he just makes a little mistake and she goes off on him, not appropriate. That's not what I'm talking about. But right on those early stages of rebuilding, such a good sign. You have terrified your wife. You have breached trust. You have broken her heart. You have made her feel like a fool. Let her go off on you some. You did this. She's with you. This was a woman that was taking great heat from the court system because it involved our secular court because of what had been done. And here's what she faced. Imagine 
the pain of this. She chose to forgive him, and she's working with us. But she was required to be in the court system in women's whatever. And she was treated and told, because you're choosing to stay with your husband, we believe you were complicit in the things he did. This involved sexual child abuse. Because every woman who had nothing to do with it divorces her husband. How would you like that? That's what she was facing also in group therapy each week, being made to feel like she was a bad mother and she was a part of this, even though she wasn't, but she was choosing to forgive. I think we could allow some points where she goes off on him still, even though she's choosing to rebuild and stay with him. Forgiveness is an act of the will, not the emotions. Forgiveness is a choice to absorb the cost of their sin. You're absorbing it. It's going to cost you. There's no way to forgive And it not cost you. If you're trying to figure out a way, well, I want to forgive, but it shouldn't cost me. I'm not the one that did anything wrong. Again, let me help you. Back to God. Did it cost God? Did he do anything wrong? There we go. It'll cost you. It'll cost you. So why forgive? God commands us to forgive others. It's not an optional. And you see the phrase all throughout the scriptures. It's even as, just as. Even as, just as, is the hinge on which you see this swing repeatedly. It ought to characterize us. Forgiven people forgive sins. It would be like a hockey player saying he doesn't like ice. A Chick-fil-A owner saying he doesn't like chicken. We forgive. And sin requires forgiveness if reconciliation is going to occur. So when should we forgive? When we know God requires it. Not when we feel like it. But God requires it. Every time there's repentance, over and over, every time. There's no limit, because there's no limits to God's forgiveness of us. We shouldn't set limits on our forgiveness of others. When we know there's something between us and the other person, even God's word tells us, if you sense there's something between you and someone else, and you even think, hey, well, they did it. But if you know, you go. There's my phrase. If you know, you go. If you think there's something up, you go. You go. Go asking questions, not making accusations, saying, I sense something between us. Have I offended you? Have I sinned against you? There's that passage where he says, just leave your little offering there at the altar and go. Be reconciled. Again, because our love for each other is supposed to be such a powerful apologetic. God doesn't care how gustily you worship with your hands lifted in the air. If there's a broken relationship between you and another believer, get on that. That's how important that is. Get on that. You're never more like your Savior than when you're forgiving. So how often are you like your Savior? 